from Staff and Graph Podcast. A matter of fact, we have her now. Uh, Rachel, welcome to the show. Uh, everybody here is talking about the Morgan Riley suspension hearing slash, and nobody can agree on what a fair penalty is. What's your opinion? Um, it's tough, right? Because I think you want that stuff out of the game. Like it, Morgan Riley, there's a difference between responding, which you absolutely have to. Uh, you can't just let that go unchecked, but you have to respond in a, in a much better manner. If you want that stuff out of the game, it's got to be five plus. The issue you have here is we've got multiple examples of similar plays that are one to three games. So I look at this and say, if we want it out of the game, it's got to be five plus. So I'm okay with a heavy suspension. What I'm not okay with is a heavy suspension for one player and then one or two games for another player for a very similar play. If you're going to come with heavy suspension, they have to be consistent. So like Alex Chason cross-checked a leaf in the head last year after the play, totally unsuspecting, or a couple of years ago, and it was a one-gamer. So if that's the precedent you set, that's the precedent you got to stick to. I would prefer if the precedent was higher than that. So I'm okay with Riley getting five or six games, but I'm not okay with it if you're not also handing out similar penalties for similar plays. And that's where I think the issue is. The issue is not should he be suspended or not. He absolutely should be. The issue is nobody knows what the precedent is because the Department of Player Safety is absolutely useless when it comes to to discipline, and I'm not even convinced that they care about the safety of players. Well, I, I, here's my issue. I, I agree with everything you've said, but I, as soon as it happened, I said he's going to get five or six uh, because Toronto's a flagship station and they have to come down hard. And then as I said that, the other part of my mind that argues with me is like, what if he was a Chicago Blackhawks player? Because I don't care, Rachel, it's the perception that the Blackhawks and some teams in the NHL, wherever Lou Lamarillo is, there just seems to be two rules sometimes. And the Maple Leafs, I think they can make an example of because they're not one of the inner circle teams like Chicago. Am I wrong on that? Um, I think I agree to a certain standpoint. When I worked in the NHL and even after I've kept track of the Department of Player Safety, the cold hard facts are George Perros played the majority of his career for the Anaheim Ducks, who have been suspended the second least by him during his tenure. The San Jose Sharks have been suspended the third most by him. Then he played for Montreal and who ended his career? The Toronto Maple Leafs. The Toronto Maple Leafs have more than 15% more suspensions in terms of games accrued than any NHL team. And if you look at it, they are far more likely to make an example out of a Leafs player than they are out of any other player. And that is a huge issue in my eyes. If you're going to make examples, and I wish they would, I really liked what Brendan Shanahan was the head of Department of Player Safety. Mm -hmm. I prefer heavier suspension. But I only want them if they're consistent because then it's a deterrent. If we're spinning a wheel or throwing a dart, a dart at a dartboard, I don't know what we're doing here, but you're absolutely right. Chicago gets off. Even to a degree, Boston gets off. Yes, they're the most penalized or second most penalized team. But if you think about all the stuff that they've gotten away with, it's significantly more. And then, I mean, one of the best examples is Kadri gets the rest of the series in the playoffs. And I totally agree with that suspension. That's fine. But then you can't suspend a Vander Kane for less than that for a play that's almost the exact same. So yep. that's where the, the issue is. 
You have to be consistent with your suspensions. And if you can't be consistent, step aside and let somebody who's capable of doing the job do the job. Uh, I see. I agree totally. And I also I, like I don't agree with with the I think you can always tell a new a new person comes into player safety is in charge. He makes like five really good decisions. And then you can see it sort of it's almost like, OK, they're getting to him. I I, I just I don't like the, the process at all. And I think that former players being associated with it exacerbates the issue and you pointed out Peros beautifully about like I'm biased everybody's biased if I were the the guy in charge the Bruins would never get penalized on anything because I'm a Bruins fan since or but that's why you need somebody who's independent you absolutely do and honestly you can't have a guy who runs the violent gentleman hockey club which slogan is make hockey violent again running your player safety department that is absolutely not how things work. If Paul Correa is running the department, if Ray Ferraro is running the department, if anyone that was a useful NHL hockey player that had any semblance of skill that would have been somebody that was targeted was running the Department of Player Safety, I think it's a much different conversation. But you have a guy who owns a company. entire premise is about violent hockey and he's the head of your player safety department, what are you doing? Yeah, it's true. Uh, I'm asking, it's a Super Bowl question, but I'm asking it because it does apply to, to hockey as well. Uh, Chiefs win again, two in a row, first time in, I think, 20 years. When does a dynasty become a dynasty? Is there a line in the sand, or do we just kind of make it up as we go along? I think I look at it, and it's going to be three... Uh, championship appearances in five years have, and, and you have to win at least two of them. So I look at that and I say the Chiefs are a dynasty because in every single season, Patrick Mahomes has been the starting quarterback. They have at least made the AFC championship and they've made the Super Bowl in four of them now. And he's three and one. And so you're at a point now where the road goes through Kansas City. If you are in the AFC, you will not win the Super Bowl unless you beat the Chiefs. And that is very much what we got with Brady and the Patriots. And that's where we are with the Chiefs. So I think when you look at Dynasty, it's like three or four championship appearances in five years and two or three wins is a dynasty, but I think it's the consideration that basically we can't win unless we beat these guys. You know it's that team that you have to beat. And next year, who do you have to beat, Alan? Well, you have to beat the Chiefs. Yeah, or the Eagles in the NFC. Uh, so, like they have any chance. Um, I want to ask you about this because everywhere I read and hear, I think it was on uh, Friedman, but it's been other places, the Oilers are reportedly interested in Jay Gensel. And I get it. Uh, but you've got to move out some cap, so that means Fogel or CC or Kulak, uh, and you're probably going to have to trade your first and maybe a, a, a good to great prospect like Holloway and Broberg or Broberg. I think that another team should be able to exceed that for Gensel, but let's say the orders are the only game in town. Who do you move out? Who's the best to deal? Is it Fogel, CC, Kulak? Especially if you're trading for Gensel, and that means you might not be getting a defenseman in the deal. You might have to make a, a trade for a blue liner after you get Gensel. Yeah, I think Fogel probably makes the most sense. And then you go down the list and you find Cody Cece and Brett Kulak. You're going to have to clear some of that cap space for sure. 
there's not really any getting around it. I think you could probably get away with a Kulak and Fogel. Uh, you get rid of them, that, that gives you just over $5 million. At the end of the day, how do you avoid this? You don't sign Cody CC to that contract. <laughs> you just don't do it. Um, same with Brett Kulak, actually, as well. And so I think when you look at it, should the Oilers be in on Jake Gensel? Yes, they absolutely should. Evander Kane, outside of his hat trick, has been not remotely good enough this year. And you need something, someone that can consistently play with top players in the top six. Gensel can play with Crosby, so I have no reason to believe he couldn't play with McDavid or Dreisaitl. But I think you're you're right in your assessment that they're going to need to make a couple trades because Pittsburgh's not taking Fogel and Kulak back. You're going to have to trade them elsewhere in sort of like a cap dump to be able to, to take Gensel back. And yeah, that's probably going to cost you Broberg or Holloway or, I mean, they, they, they've got a few, right? Xavier Borgo, Raphael Lavoie. There's a, there's a couple of them that, that they've got. And so I think when you look at it, they have options. The, the simple solution is to simply not try and blow good contracts for non-top six, top four players. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the shoot the moon play, uh, Vancouver did it. Maybe they'll do it again, but they did it with Lindholm. There's an overpay. We've talked about the Canucks and how much they paid. To get the guy, I, I like. I, we talk about Gensel like he's available. He may not be, and I feel the same way about Toffoli. But if you're the Oilers and you get any indication that one of those guys that you really do like, who you feel can can move the needle for you on one of those top skill lines, is available, and understanding that they don't have a whole hell of a lot in terms of picks and prospects to trade. If you're the Oilers, do you because of this year, because of the chance to win it, and it's different shades of gray, and you're one of them, and you could improve with Gensel? Do you shoot the moon? Do you go soon and try to get the guy, or do you wait till the last minute? I'm not even convinced Gensel is available. Honestly, if he is available, yes, you empty the. That's a guy that you can really comfortably go after, and that's somebody I would be going after. Tyler Toffoli doesn't do it for me. Uh, I don't think he's been very good of late. I'm not really even sure sort of what New Jersey is going to do because they're kind of in a precarious position. Whereas with Pittsburgh, Jake Gensel is a is a better hockey player than Tyler Toffoli. Like, I'm not saying there's a chasm, but we're talking about a legitimate first-line player that, can, that has proven he can play with superstars in this league and score. And that's a proven commodity, and he's consistent. And so I, I like Jake Gensel a lot. I think if Edmonton can get him, that is absolutely something that they need to be seriously considering. And if you have to overpay a little bit for a star, that's much different than overpaying for a middle six guy into Foley. So Foley's not a top line guy on a cup contending team, whereas Gensel very much is. And so I look at that and I say, it really depends on, on what's available. Are you getting a legitimate first-line player, first-pairing defenseman, or top-end goalie like a UC Soros, for example, then yes, absolutely, you don't mind overpaying. But outside of that, I, I would be very careful if I were Edmonton to not overpay for something that I'm not absolutely sure is going to be a difference maker. Rachel Dory, our guest staff and Raf podcast. Final question, Rachel. Why haven't the Devils traded for a goalie? I know the price would be prohibitive, but it seems like such a no-brainer to improve yourself immediately and be a strong contender right away. I'm not sure, given the Dougie Hamilton injury, Jack Hughes has been in and out of the lineup and kind of everything that's going on. It, it kind of seems like an off year for the Devils. 
I do wonder about the goaltending, though, when you think about it. And they were hot after Hellebuck, uh, and then he re-signed in Winnipeg. And so I wonder if the Devils kind of look at the season they're having and, and say, this, like, we've got – our window is just open. Like, we've got so much time. We don't need to overextend ourselves in a year where we've had some pretty rotten luck with injuries. We can stand pat see what happens and evaluate in the off season to really try and make our team better all year next year. Because if you are going full steam ahead, you trade for a goalie, the odds are by the time you get to round one, you've tired yourself out just trying to make the playoffs here. And so I wonder if in the offices of the Prudential Center, they're kind of thinking to themselves, maybe we don't need to push the chips all the way. And very similar, I think the Devils and the Leafs are kind of in a similar spot in the sense that like, I don't know if this is the year to push your chips in just based on how the year has gone. Whereas Edmonton has turned that ship all the way around in a 180 and they absolutely are a legitimate contender in the Pacific. And I don't think anybody wants to see them come playoff time. Rachel Dory, you rock. Thank you. Thank you. All right.